Let's pray that God might bless his word to us before we read. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak uh, for your servants who are listening. Give us ears to hear uh, what you would say to us. And may our eyes be fixed upon Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one whose kingdom shall never end. We pray this in his name. Amen. I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Last week we had begun uh, our study of this chapter as we work our way through the book of Daniel. And we had looked at the first 30 verses uh, last week. And now we're going to be looking at verses 31 through uh, the end, verse uh, 49, I believe. As you turn there, just a quick little story. Um, Back in 2015, I had preached uh, this text um, under a different title, uh, the title, uh, as you can see it in the text here, is The Mystery of the Kingdom Revealed, and I learned my lesson. Um, I entitled the sermon, thought it would be kind of catchy, uh, How to Take Over the World. <laughs> and uh, afterwards, I preached the sermon. Uh, this, uh, this man comes up to me, hands me an envelope, it's sealed, and he says, uh, read this uh, when you get home. And um, home, for me at the time, was all the way back in Indiana, so I had like a two-hour trip back. I had this letter sitting next to me, and I'm like, I can't wait. So I open up as I'm, I'm driving. And um, oddly enough, this is 2015, he told me uh, the real way to take over the world um, was not to trust the banks, but to buy Bitcoin. And I should have listened to him. <laughs> so there you go. But in some sense, we could still use that title, but I don't plan on buying any Bitcoin now, especially. But uh, here in Daniel chapter 2, how to take over the world or simply the mystery of the kingdom revealed. Now, let me give just a quick recap from last week. I won't read all the first 30 verses here, but as many of us know, this chapter of Daniel opens up with King Nebuchadnezzar, this great, mighty, powerful ruler uh, during uh, around 600 B.C., um, is having nightmares. He's in the second year of his reign, and he's having this nightmare. And so he calls all of his wise men, the enchanters, the magicians, the Chaldeans, and he asks them not only to interpret the dream, but because he didn't trust them most likely, he says, also tell me what the dream was and its interpretation as well. And so as they press him and go back and forth in this dialogue, they eventually confess to him, and again, these words um, are quite helpful, again, a, a kind of a, a, a summary statement of the wisdom of this world, as it says there in verse 10, just to read that verse at least. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king, the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so this very confession of the wisdom of the world as to its uh, impotency, as to its uh, frailty, its weakness, that very confession will now be challenged by the God of Daniel and through Daniel, whose God is not like the gods of the nations who are far off, but it's a God uh, who is near and dwells uh, with his people. And so Daniel hears of this, that the king has this uh, dream that cannot be interpreted, and the king then sends out his warriors to go kill all of the wise men, specifically Arioch of the king's guard. And he comes to Daniel, and Daniel says, well, give me time. And so Daniel goes before his God in prayer, and God reveals to Daniel the mystery of the king's dream. And then notice, just to read some more verses, verse 20, Daniel then praises God, and this description of who God is, again, stands in contrast 
to the description of the gods of this world, the idols of this world that are lifeless and cannot help their people. But here, the God of Daniel, the God of Israel, our God is blessed by Daniel. In verse 20, he says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. How has God shown his might? Verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. How has he shown his wisdom? He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you made known to us the king's matter. And so now Daniel, in the following verses, approaches boldly yet humbly the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, confessing to him that no man, not even Daniel himself, could know the king's dream or its interpretation. But before this mighty monarch, he confesses that there is a God in heaven who can reveal dreams, the God of Daniel. And so after making this confession before the king, now in verse 31, which we'll pick up, uh, Daniel is going to give the king's dream and also its interpretation. And so there we'll pick up in verse 31 and read to the end of the chapter. It says, the holy and inspired word of God. Daniel says to the king, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in those days, the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. 
The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So far from God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's helpful when you're able to see behind the curtain, right? The curtain that's hiding kind of the real operation of things. And you can sort of peer behind it to see, well, what's really going on? What's really behind this? Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz, of course, right? As she appears before the great Oz, uh, the great wizard, right, of Oz, um, is a terrifying figure, right? And they're shaking and they're afraid before this, until I believe it's Toto. I haven't seen this in a while. But Toto, right, runs to the curtain and pulls it back only to find an old man behind this machine, right? Once you see behind the curtain what seemed very fearful and what seemed very um, overwhelming now has, it appears in a different light. It seems manageable. Well, in many ways, the book of Daniel is pulling back the curtain for us behind the world's power, right? It can appear so fierce and so ferocious. It can seem so overwhelming to intimidate the people of God And yet, as Daniel pulls the curtain back, we find that what's behind the scenes is nothing really to be afraid of at all. King Nebuchadnezzar is one who appears powerful and mighty. He was the most mighty man on the face of the earth with his great empire of Babylon. And yet, in the midst of all of this, he himself is 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 an afraid, scared little boy having a dream that's upsetting him. And, and more than that, not just himself, his own kind of calling out his own character, but more than that, as, as Daniel pulls the curtain back behind the scenes, we begin to see that Nebuchadnezzar isn't ultimate. The powers of this world are not ultimate and absolute, but rather behind them stands our sovereign God. And that's what Daniel shows us all throughout this book, especially as he uses irony all throughout The book of Daniel is made to make you laugh at times and to laugh especially at these rulers who would be otherwise so impressive and so great and would have the honor of all the nations before them. And yet, Daniel invites us to laugh at them, even as in Psalm 2, as we sung earlier, as they they wage, as the nations and kings wage war against God and his people, it says God sits in the heavens and he laughs at the silliness of what they think that they ultimately can Accomplish. And so Daniel is pulling back the curtain for us behind world powers, uh, things that would often intimidate us, and he wants us to see that our God is the one who is in control, that our God is the one who is ordering and orchestrating everything according to his appointed end, even King Nebuchadnezzar, even the great powerful kings of this earth, the powers of this world are not outside the Lord's control. Satan himself does the Lord's bidding ultimately in the end. Properly understood. We have much could be said about that. But I was thinking in mind when Luther, Martin Luther had said that even Satan is God's Satan. The devil is God's devil, right? He cannot do anything apart from God's will. So too with Nebuchadnezzar. 
so too with the gods of uh, this, uh, rather the kings and powers of our own age and of Daniel's age as well. And so as we think about what's taking place here as, as Daniel appears before the king to give him his dream and its interpretation, um, but we're going to think about it under three points. The first point we've already kind of jumped into a bit, uh, but the first one is the sovereign of kings. Uh, secondly, the history of kings. And then thirdly, the Lord of kings. So firstly, we want to think about the sovereign of kings. A sovereign is one who is above. Um, trace that word all the way back. It has some Latin root uh, with the word super, meaning above. Think of supernatural, above nature. And so sovereign is one who reigns above. It stands over. And so we have here in Daniel revealed to us the sovereign of kings. Kings are not ultimate. There is one Above them, and that is what Daniel impresses upon King Nebuchadnezzar. As Daniel appears before the king, he reminds the king uh, 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 that it is God who stands above him in heaven who is the one who reveals this mystery and has also sent this dream to him. But it's also very important to see that between Daniel giving the dream, what the dream was, as Nebuchadnezzar had seen this colossal image in the form of a man made out of four different parts, gold, uh, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. And then the interpretation, so between the dream and the interpretation, Daniel puts King Nebuchadnezzar in his place, in a sense. In in a humble way, Daniel doesn't come there brashly. He, He acknowledges the honor of the king as the king, yet he comes confidently and humbly as he trusts the Lord his God. And so notice, though, between the dream and the interpretation, what Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 36. He says, this was the dream, now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, right? So on the face of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar was, in fact, the king of kings. Uh, Other kings submitted to him. He conquered them and brought them under his dominion. And so Daniel recognizes, you, O king, the king of kings, But again, he puts him in his place and gives him the right perspective on his own kingship for Nebuchadnezzar's sake, but also for our sake as well, that we might again peer behind the curtains of world power. He says to the king, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. Right? So he's saying, yes, you have the kingdom. And yes, you have might and you have power and you have glory. But you didn't get them yourself. They're not the, 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 the result of your own hands, but rather they have been given to you. God has given to King Nebuchadnezzar his position, his power, his glory. He goes on to say in verse 38, Into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, making you rule over them all, right? So behind the curtain, right, Nebuchadnezzar is shown not to be absolute and ultimate, but one whose power is derived, one who has been given these things that he has. The other prophets you can read in Jeremiah, Ezekiel as well, highlight this very same point, highlighting the fact that Nebuchadnezzar, though he was the one to exile God's people, to besiege and overthrow Jerusalem, to, uh, to, to, um, to sack the temple of God and to take all of its possessions. Though he did all of these things, he is still 
God's servant in the end. He is still doing God's bidding. And this is so important for God's people to see because it means that that because there is a sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar, because there is one above him who has given him all that he has, it means that same sovereign can take it away whenever he so desires. And that's what we see reflected in the dream, right? Nebuchadnezzar, as great and powerful as he is, will be replaced by another kingdom. And that kingdom replaced by another kingdom. And that kingdom replaced by another kingdom. Right? As God gives, so God takes. And so it reminds God's people then that though earthly powers may hold sway for a time, they will not hold sway forever. God himself can and will, in the end, remove them. Whether in this life, as God topples uh, certain kingdoms, as kingdom of Babylon, or ultimately in the end, when that stone, as we're going to say more later, but just to give you a, a sneak peek, the stone comes and shatters those kingdoms, and the fullness of that kingdom comes with the coming of Jesus Christ again at the end of this age. It's then that every kingdom that opposes the Lord will be destroyed and will, as the dream talks about, be crushed and blown away like chaff in the wind. And so, again, by peering behind the curtain, right, we see a sovereign over the king of kings. You see God himself orchestrating and controlling all things according to his purposes and his power. Daniel reflected on this earlier in the very opening of his um, book here. There in verse 2 of chapter 1, it said that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, who was the king of Israel, rather the king of Judah at the time, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. It's God who handed them over. But it's also God who will then redeem them and restore them. But Nebuchadnezzar is not ultimate. There is a sovereign who stands over him. We see this also just in one more point to highlight for us here. It's interesting that when Daniel describes the, the magnitude and the scope of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, that he says he reigns not only over man, wherever he may dwell, but at the end of verse 38 it says that he also reigns over the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens. That's language that should bring to mind a previous text in Scripture. Remember when God had created Adam, and God had um, commissioned Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth and subdue it, and exercise dominion over it, over the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. And so what we see here is sort of a counterfeit Um, fulfillment of the creation mandate. God is going to reverse this. God is going to undo this. But here we begin to see something of Satan himself trying to counterfeit the Lord's work, trying to establish a king who would reign and rule in such a way that not God's name, but the name of man would be glorified. Adam was commissioned that God's glory would fill the earth. Nebuchadnezzar is counterfeiting that by filling it with, with his own glory all under the sovereign purposes of God. And yet God will, just as he took it from Adam, will also take it from King Nebuchadnezzar in the end. And so we've seen the sovereign of kings as we peer behind the curtain of world power. We've seen that his dominion, its power is counterfeit, and God, as he gave, will also take it away. And therefore... As we ourselves receive this word from God, as we hear this, 
It means first and foremost in that we have nothing to fear in this life as we seek to live faithful lives before God in this world. Often faithfulness comes at a cost, and often faithfulness to God comes at the expense of the world hating you, however that might be expressed. And often where we might become fearful of the implications, of the consequences, but as we peer behind, again, the curtain of world power, we say that there is nothing to fear. There is no great wizard of Oz. There is a man pulling strings who can do nothing to me in the end. Ultimately, my God is the one who is the sovereign of kings, and therefore, I have nothing to fear. I also have no reason to compromise. It's often the temptation of God's church and God's people. We see that all around us today. Believe this ideology, affirm this identity, and if you don't, well, all hell is going to break loose on you, right? That's kind of how it works. And and so God's people, though, have no reason to compromise. God has given us no reason to compromise, but every reason to stand firm upon his word, no matter what it says and no matter how unpopular that might be in the world around us. Because behind the world powers that seek to bring us under its sway and its power is nothing in the end. So like Daniel, before the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar, needs not to compromise, but rather to stand firm and to hold fast to the truth that he knows, to stand firm upon the word of God. And therefore, as those who have no reason to fear and no reason to compromise, therefore we are called to bear faithful witness in this world to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how the church conquers and overcomes. That's what the book of Revelation tells us. And there's so much here I would love to, maybe I'll do a Bible study or something, showing how the book of Daniel helps us to read the book of Revelation um, in, in its whole structure and everything. It's really fascinating, but we don't have time for that. Um, we could talk about that during a break or something. But Revelation chapter 12, we have language uh, that is very reminiscent of Daniel chapter 2. And there we read... Verse 10, much more comes before it, but let me just pick up in verse 10. It says there that I, John, heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. That is, as we're going to see, the stone that comes to crush the kingdoms. It is the coming of Christ, his son. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before God, and they have conquered him. How? How does the church conquer today? They've conquered him by the blood of the lamb, a sacrifice, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Can that be said of us? Messiah's Reform Fellowship loved their lives not even unto death. That's the kind of witness that God calls us to and enables us to live as his people here because he is the sovereign of kings. As the sovereign of kings, we come to our second point, the history of kings. As a sovereign, he is the one who, as Daniel praises God, who removes kings and sets up kings, right? Daniel had said that back in verse 21. He shows his might in removing and in setting up kings like Nebuchadnezzar, right? Everything he has was given to him. And therefore, as the sovereign who removes and sets up kings, 
He can tell before it takes place the rise and fall of kingdoms and kings, as he does in this dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. He can reveal to the King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place, as he says, after this, in the latter days. The latter days, ultimately, as we come to know that phrase in the Bible, refers to the period of time that will commence with the coming of Christ. And it will end with his coming again. And therefore, what Nebuchadnezzar sees is all relevant to us because we live in the latter days, as the Bible defines our time period. The period between Christ's first coming, in which he establishes and inaugurates his kingdom, and his second coming, when he will consummate his kingdom and bring it to its fullness. And God, as a sovereign of kings, is able then to tell the history of kings before that history even takes place. And so King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, with its colossal image, um, and its four parts, and them breaking down, um, provides us with a kind of panorama of world history. Now, on the one hand, people can become very preoccupied with the very details, who are the kingdoms that Daniel foresees all the way back in 600 BC, who are the kingdoms that God has promised, and we can give a brief answer to that, but that's not the main point. The main point is that we might see that these kingdoms are under the sovereignty of God. They rise and fall according to his will. So that over the course of history, though we may not know the details of every event here and there, and we're not to seek out to understand that, but we are to recognize and see that as history moves forward, and even in our own day and into the future, God is the God who is the sovereign of kings, who orchestrates the history of kings as well. And yet also, as we recognize here, that God as the one who is able to foretell these kingdoms, it also gives us all the more assurance that his word is true. A brief, um, brief summary of these kingdoms that are foreseen. The gold, the head of the gold of that kingdom, of that image, is, as Daniel says, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. He says, then a kingdom inferior to you will then rise up. That is the kingdom of silver, the chest and the arms. And that kingdom is often referred to as the Medo-Persian kingdom. Uh, the Medes and uh, Persia ends up annexing the Medes and then comes and conquers Babylon, as we're going to see later in chapter 5 of Daniel, as they come and take over uh, the very city of Babylon. So you have the movement from, in history from Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire. The bronze coming third is likely a reference to King Alexander the Great of, of, Greek, of Greece, the Grecian Empire. Um, the text here draws our attention to the scope of its, of, its, um, of its reign. It says there in verse 39 that this kingdom which shall rule over all the earth. And so we recognize Alexander the Great with his many conquests. Uh, reaching um, as far as Greece and Egypt in the east to uh, northwestern India. I mean, it was a massive empire that Alexander the Great had uh, conquered. And so you move in history, as we see, from Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire to Alexander the Great and the Greeks to then the iron and the clay at the bottom of this uh, image. Uh, Speaking of the next world empire that arises, namely the Empire of Rome. And it's during the time of Rome as it seeks to unite a people 
the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And here the text reminds us that though they might seek peace and seek to bring one together, that they ultimately will be a divided kingdom as they are and ultimately divide east and west in the end. And it's during the reign of Rome, during the Iron Age, you could say that the stone comes and the stone crushes the feet of that, um, that image to establish itself and it grows until it covers the whole earth with a great mountain. And so, right, we can have likely a basic view of what is foreseen here in the year 600 B.C., so some 2,600 years ago, um, this is foreseen. But again, the point here is not simply just to recognize that, but again, to see that God is the sovereign over uh, these kings. And it helps us to recognize that his word is all the more true. For example... The Belgic Confession, which is a faithful summary and a confession of the truths of Scripture, says this about God's Word, saying that we believe all, things, all these books and all things contained in them without a doubt, not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but, but above all because the Holy Spirit testifies in our heart that they are from God, and also because they prove themselves to be from God. For even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. Right? God is able to speak of future kingdoms before they come to be because he is the sovereign over them. He could tell us the history of kings. And more than that, more than just reminding us that our God is sovereign over the kingdoms, it also reminds us that these kingdoms, though they may appear fierce and they may appear permanent and eternal, who could overcome Babylon, right? Yet we're reminded that these kingdoms all in the end are temporary. They are not eternal and they will be crushed in the end. All right, so this is the reason Daniel is given and King Nebuchadnezzar is given and we are given through them this revelation that God is the sovereign of kings, orchestrates the history of kings and ultimately in the end will bring them to nothing as he crushes them to dust that they might be carried away, as it says, like wind, uh, like chaff on the summer threshing floors. That is the end, that is the, the terminus, that is toward which every kingdom of man is headed. Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the United States, whatever it might be, that is where it's all headed. Now it doesn't give us Right, if that was all that God revealed, it would be quite hopeless and wouldn't be very good news at all. Uh, something is better than nothing, at least, right? If, if it's coming to nothing, then, then what hope do we have? Well, that brings us to our final point, the Lord of kings, right? God doesn't merely just destroy the kingdoms of man to leave man kingdomless and hopeless, but rather he destroys them and that he might set up his kingdom. As it says that as this colossal image is built, a stone cut out by no human hand comes and strikes the image, causing it to shatter. And that stone, as scripture teaches us later, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who came and who began his ministry saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is the one, he is the stone who brings the kingdom of God. And he has done so in his first coming. Notice, for example, what Luke tells us in Luke chapter 20. Regarding Christ, 
and the stone and identifying him with it. Jesus tells this parable in Luke. At the end of it, we read this. But when the tenants saw him, that is the son, so this um, father has this uh, plot of land rented out, and they have disrespected um, his servants whom he sent to them, and so now the father sends the son to them. Will they respect the son? And so it says, but when the tenants saw him, the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? Quoting the Psalms. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Language reminiscent of the stone of Daniel chapter 2. Christ has come in his first coming to establish the kingdom of God. And yet, though Daniel saw it from afar with not as much clarity as us, we have come to see that the stone comes to crush But its coming at first was hidden. Its coming at first was spiritual. Its coming at first was not visible to the world around them. That's what the Jews of Jesus' day misunderstood. They thought the coming Messiah, the stone, would come and immediately Rome would fall. And immediately the empires of the world would fall and brought under the sway and dominion of Israel. But Jesus instead comes in two parts. He comes, firstly, to establish his kingdom. And today he is establishing that kingdom as he gathers his people from all the nations of the earth, bringing them as the citizens of that kingdom. The church here being a visible manifestation in the people here of the kingdom of God now come, now present among us. And it's when Christ comes again at the end of the age that then the kingdom will be made visible. Then the kingdom will have conquered and vanquished all of its enemies and all of its foes. So the only kingdom remaining will be the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. This is what Daniel saw some 2,600 years ago. He saw the coming of the Christ. And he's going to be given even more details later, especially in Daniel chapter 7 when we get there in due time. The way the book of Daniel is structured, chapter 2 and chapter 7 are parallel with one another. Um, In fact, um, just about the entire Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but Daniel chapter 2 into chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. Uh, So chapter 1 of Daniel is in Hebrew, chapter 2 through 7 is in Aramaic, chapter 8 through 12 is in Hebrew. You might say, well, what's this Aramaic section doing? Well, it shows us that 2 and 7 kind of sandwich this section And so when we come to chapter 2, as Daniel has another vision of these four beasts, well, these four beasts are going to correspond to the four parts of the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream in chapter 2. But we'll say more about that later. And so this vision of Daniel is given a little bit more detail later on in chapter 7. And then as we're going to see also in Revelation, the book of Revelation, the very vision of Daniel as he foresaw the latter days is going to be given further insight And though we do not know times or days, we're not called to seek those out. And though we don't know details, yet God has given us a broad, in broad strokes, the history of this world. And in the end, the basic conclusion is that the stone that has come 
the kingdom that has come with Jesus Christ, will one day be a great mountain that fills the earth. That is the end toward which all of history is moving. That is the end to which our lives are caught up in. We're caught up in this movement. And either we, we kiss the Son and find life in Him and find peace under His reign, or we continue in the kingdoms of man to rebel against Him. And whether in this life or in the next, we will be those who do so will find Him to be one who breaks them to pieces. This is the judgment and the salvation that is brought with the coming of this stone. So Jesus Christ is that stone. His kingdom is, as described in Daniel 2, it is that kingdom that shall have no end. As Daniel says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, a kingdom of heaven that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just give, as we come to a conclusion here then, just kind of a couple summary terms regarding the kingdom of Jesus. Things we've kind of talked about, but just to put a a cap on it. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus brings is not like the kingdoms of this world built by human hands, but one of supernatural divine origin. It comes from God. It's why the stone is one described as not cut out by human hands. And therefore, the kingdom of God advances not as the world's kingdoms advance, but by, as we said earlier, the faithful testimony of God's people who love their lives not even unto death. The supernatural origin of the kingdom also teaches us about the advancement of that kingdom. It advances through the testimony of God's people as we bear witness of Christ in this world by word and by our lives. And therefore, our view of the kingdom of Christ as citizens of that kingdom ought not to be confused with the kingdoms of this world. I think that's often a struggle that we have. The rise of culture warriors within the church can often make it seem as if the church's kingdom is just a Christianized world kingdom. It's different in origin. It's different and it's an advancement. God's word tells us that all so clearly here in Daniel chapter 2. The stone was cut out by no human hands. Without human power, without human strength, without human assistance, the kingdom comes and it will be established through the supernatural power of Christ through his word and his spirit. Secondly, the kingdom is not only supernatural in its origin, but it's also historic. When we think about the kingdom of Christ, We're not to think about a far, far away land, a mystical place, a myth, myth, but rather his kingdom as Christ himself, like Christ himself, has entered into human history. It has come, it has roots here, even the roots of a mountain as it will grow and cover the whole earth. It's not merely, our religion is not merely one that is abstract and ethereal, but it's one that touches history because our God is the sovereign of kings and therefore orchestrates all its happenings, all the history of kings throughout this world, and his kingdom will be established in a historic sense. It has come in history in Christ. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it will come when Christ comes again, the fullness of his kingdom in the glory of his reign. Supernatural in its origin, it is historic, Likewise, its duration is not like the duration of the kingdoms of this world that are temporary and fleeting. 
but rather its duration is one of eternity. It's one of eternity. In a very um, fascinating passage um, in Second Peter, Peter reminds the church of where we are headed. As pilgrim people, not yet home, where are we going? Well, Peter puts forth the end of our journey. He says, in this way there will be richly provided for you. This is uh, chapter 1, verse 11 of Second Peter. In this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And, and I find it fascinating in this passage why out of all the adjectives Peter could have used to describe the kingdom, right? A righteous kingdom, a glorious kingdom, a kingdom full of light. Like why does, does Peter choose the adjective eternal? The eternal kingdom. And I think one of the reasons is because in this letter, Peter is addressing a kind of false teaching that will be persistent throughout the latter days, including our own day. And this false teaching is defined by one that misattributes eternity not to the kingdom, but to the present order of things. They assume that the present order of things is eternal rather than what is to come. And so Peter is reminding them by highlighting the eternality of the kingdom of God that it alone is what lasts forever. It alone has a duration that will not come to any end. The glory of Babylon is gone. The glory of the Medes and the Persians are gone. The glory of of Rome is gone. The glory of New York City will one day be gone. But the glory of of the kingdom of Jesus Christ will last forever. And therefore, live for his kingdom. Live for that which is eternal. Unlike the kingdoms of man that are here today and gone tomorrow, the kingdom of Christ is eternal you know, we have the five solas of the Reformation. And as thinking about this, we should maybe add a sixth, but maybe not. I, I don't want to confuse things and change things up. But soli deo eternitas. Eternity belongs to God alone. Just like glory to God alone, eternity to God alone. And so this kingdom is supernatural in its origin. It's historic as it's established here amongst us. Um, it is of eternal duration, and its power is one that cannot be conquered, right? The power of Babylon, of Greece, of Rome, they fell at some point. They broke, they shattered. But the kingdom of Christ is invincible. It is unconquerable. It will remain in the end. Its mission will be fulfilled. It will become a great mountain. It will fill the earth, period, because God, as the sovereign of history, the sovereign of kings, will see it through. And it's then that the creation mandate, counterfeited by Nebuchadnezzar, will come to its fullness as the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And finally, not only supernatural in its origin, historic in its establishment, eternal in its duration, unconquerable in its power, but also it provides us with a hope that no kingdom of man can provide us with. It comes into the chaos and hopelessness of human history, right? If all that human history was, was symbolized in that colossal image, collapsing and destroying, then it's hopeless. But God has brought hope in his kingdom. The final word of history, as one commentator, Ian Duguid, had said, the final word of history does not lie with a new and improved version of the statue of man. Rather, it lies with something radical that God will do and God will bring about his kingdom kingdom of his son, a kingdom that has no end.
So this, in broad strokes, is the history of our world. And therefore, as we think upon this dream, as the revelation of God from this chapter comes to our ears, our response must only then to be to run to Jesus Christ, the King. He is the Lord of kings. He is the one whose kingdom will have no end. God has established him already upon his holy mountain, as Psalm 2 depicts it. He is today reigning at his right hand. And this king is coming again with his kingdom. And so then with our eyes lifted heavenward, we wait as his people, bringing glory to his name. We do not compromise. We do not grow afraid. But instead, with steel in our spines, by faith in our, in our Savior, we look to him and live and confess before this world that our God reigns, that Christ is king. Amen. Oh, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, what a marvelous uh, word you revealed uh, to your servant Daniel and having recorded it for us that we might hear it as well. Father, as we're reminded of your sovereignty, may we look to you and recognize behind the curtains of this world, the world's power, that there's truly nothing to fear. And may we instead live then for the kingdom of Christ and to know that you have given him all glory and might and power May we anticipate his coming again when he brings us into the fullness of his kingdom, a kingdom of light, a kingdom of eternity, a kingdom of glory. And Father, we thank you also that our king is one who we read of elsewhere in scripture as one who brings us to share in the glory of his kingdom, to sit with him upon thrones, and to reign with him over all creation forever and ever. Father, thank you that you have brought about the fulfillment of of that mandate given to Adam long ago, now fulfilled in Christ and in his church. And one day the fullness of that we will see before our eyes. And so until then, may you cause us to walk by faith and not by sight, to trust your word as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And may we give Christ all glory as the King of kings, even the Lord of kings, as Nebuchadnezzar confessed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.